It's just one disaster after another till you end up an old woman who's good for nothing and who's real lucky to find someone to feel sorry for her, Refat writes in the story Bahia's Eyes. Some may ask why I'm bringing this up now, when the Middle East and North Africa are in turmoil, when people are losing their lives by the thousands, when it can sometimes seem as though the revolutions that began in 2010, incited not by the usual hatred of America and Israel, but by a common demand for freedom and dignity, have lost their way. After all, shouldn't everyone receive basic rights first, before women demand special treatment? Also, what does gender, or for that matter sex, have to do with the Arab Spring? It should have everything to do with the revolution. This is our chance to dismantle an entire political and economic system that treats half of humanity like children at best. If not now, when? Name me an Arab country and I'll recite a litany of abuses against women occurring in that country. Abuses fueled by a toxic mix of culture and religion that few seem willing to disentangle, lest they blaspheme or offend. When more than 90% of women who have ever married in Egypt have had their genitals cut in the name of purity, then surely we must all blaspheme. When Egyptian women are subjected to humiliating virginity tests merely for speaking out, it's no time for silence. When an article in the Egyptian criminal code says that if a woman has been beaten by her husband with good intentions, no punitive damages can be obtained, then to hell with political correctness. And what, pray tell, are good intentions? They are legally deemed to include any beating that is not severe or directed at the face. What all this means is that when it comes to the status of women in the Arab world, it's not better than you think, it's much, much worse. Even after these revolutions, women remain covered up and anchored to the home, are denied the simple mobility of getting into their own cars, are forced to get permission from men to travel, and are unable to marry or divorce without a male guardian's blessing. The Arabic-speaking countries of the Middle East and North Africa stand apart in their terrible record on women's rights. Not a single Arab country ranks in the top 100 positions on the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, putting the region as a whole solidly at the planet's rock bottom. The annual report looks at four key areas, health, life expectancy, etc., access to education, economic participation, salaries, job types, and seniority, and political engagement. Neighbours Saudi Arabia and Yemen, for instance, are eons apart when it comes to gross domestic product. GDP. But only eight places separate them on the Global Gender Gap Report, with the Kingdom at 127 and Yemen coming in at 136, the very bottom of the 2013 index. Morocco, often touted for its progressive family law, a 2005 report by Western experts called it an example for Muslim countries aiming to integrate into modern society, ranks 129th. It's easy to see why the lowest-ranked country is Yemen, where 49% of women are illiterate, 59% do not participate in the labor force, and there were no women in parliament as of 2013. Horrific news reports about eight-year-old girls dying on the evening of their wedding to much older men have done little to stem the tide of child marriage there. Instead, demonstrations in support of child marriage outstrip those against it, and clerics declare the opponents of state-sanctioned pedophilia are apostates because the Prophet Muhammad, according to them, married his second wife, Aisha, when she was a child.
At least Yemeni women can drive. It surely hasn't ended their problems, but it symbolizes freedom of mobility. And nowhere does such symbolism resonate more than in Saudi Arabia, where child marriage is also practiced and where grown women are treated like children their entire lives, made to obtain the permission of a male guardian to do the most basic of things. Saudi women far outnumber their male counterparts on university campuses, but are reduced to watching far less qualified men control every aspect of their lives. Nothing prepared me for Saudi Arabia. I was born in Egypt, but my family left for London when I was seven years old. After almost eight years in the United Kingdom, we moved to Saudi Arabia in 1982. Both my parents, Egyptians who had earned PhDs in medicine in London, had found jobs in Jeddah, teaching medical students and technicians clinical microbiology. The campuses were segregated. My mother taught the women on the female campus and my